Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. Forty people wiped out, and we are the strong ones. Praise be to God. Sam said that there is no children's ministry. Actually, there is. If you look in the back, on the very left side, there are children there. That is children's ministry today. If you want to volunteer, feel free to sit next to them and help the parents. Children's ministry continues. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. You're wondering why I'm preaching from Mark 1 and not Malachi, because I was told two days ago that I'm preaching, so I had to come up with something new. So turn with me to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to be preaching a short message on Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The page number, if you have the black hardcover pew Bible, is page 887. Page 887. Because men must not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let us read from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. I'll read for us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. 
he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. This is the word of the Lord. A praise for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word does not return void. It always accomplishes whatever it's set out to do, to further harden or to soften, to give faith. We know that faith comes from hearing, hearing the words of Christ. So we pray that you would refresh our, our faith, that you would help us to look to Christ, the perfecter of our faith, that you would help us to look to Christ and not elsewhere for the God-sized hole in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would help us to know that our long-awaited hour has indeed come 2,000 years ago that Christ indeed came as the promised Messiah, King, and Son. So encourage us with your word today. In Christ's name, amen. When I was a freshman in high school, all I wanted to do was drive. I mean, the thought of not asking my mom to drive me anywhere, but I don't even need to tell my mom where I'm going, I can just drive myself wherever my friends are hanging out seemed glorious. That's what I wanted and that's what I was wanting. I was thrilled for the power and the authority and the autonomy that I would get to have by driving myself. I used to drive Lexus ES 350 as my first car 2002. It was a sweet ride. It had a marshmallow sticker on the side because my mom liked marshmallow. And I loved driving that car. And it's been a minute since I've been in high school, I do, although I do look like I'm still from high school. But let me tell you, I abhor driving. I hate driving. If I can hire someone, someone to drive me 24-7, I would. I drive two hours every day, Monday through Friday. Hour to work, an hour back. 91, praise be to God. <laughs> that 91 freeway is good old one hour. But listen, if you are not a Christian in this room, or if you're unsure whether you are, what you are single-mindedly waiting for, what you're hoping for, will disappoint you. Well, let me nuance that a little. It might give you the feeling of being full and content when you are unboxing whatever you've been waiting for. But give it a few weeks. The feeling of contentment will fade away like fruity flavor of a chewing gum. You chew for a minute and all the flavor is gone. What if I were to tell you though, that this anticipation and what you, what you are waiting for, that feeling of waiting, discontentment, an eager expectation is actually there by God's design. That God designed for you to have that feeling of eager expectation and waiting and anticipation. You are meant to have that feeling. You are waiting for something. And that's a piece of hint, a hint for the truth of the matter that God has left in you, in all of us. A quote from C.S. Lewis might come in handy. 
Quote, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desire exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. Close quote. That's an astounding quote, isn't it? He's saying that there is an innate desire that we're not, that's not being fulfilled. But that's not telling that the universe that we live in is a fraud. That's just telling that, that we're meant for another country. And that country is not of this world. That we're waiting for another world to come. The God-sized hole in ourselves is an astounding grace from the Lord. And it helps, to, to, it helps us to know our inefficiency without acknowledging the Creator. And praise be to God that our long-awaited hour has come to an end because God's only Son, God's only begotten Son, has come 2,000 years ago. If you're taking notes, the main idea of today's text is the wait is over. The wait is over. The wait is over because of three reasons. Because Jesus, who has come, is the promised Messiah. That's verses 1 through 8. Second, because Jesus is the promised King. Verses 9 through 11. Third, because Jesus is the promised Son. So three reasons are because Jesus is the promised Messiah, promised King, and promised Son. And Jesus has come, and it's important to know who he is because of, because of him coming 2,000 years ago, our wait is over. So we're talking about his identity, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, promised King, and promised Son. First, the wait is over because Jesus is the promised Messiah. Look with me to the first verse of Mark chapter 1. Look down with me. The first verse introduces the gospel account of Mark. The first sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how it starts. Now remember, gospel account of Mark is the very first gospel. So that word gospel is first introduced here. 
we know of gospel account of Mark, Matthew, John, Luke. But that wasn't the case when this was first written and, and published or given out. It says beginning of the gospel. And people are wondering, what is this gospel? Good news. So they have to answer that question. What is this gospel? We know of what the gospel is. But back then, 2,000 years ago, 30 years after Jesus has died and rose again, it's a new concept. Though, I mean, it's in Isaiah in the Old Testament. But hundreds of pages before, thousands of years before these words, the first sentence of the first book of the Bible starts in a similar way. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see the similarity here, right? And the similarity is the word beginning. The word beginning is the similarity. Though in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the world was utterly marred, tainted, and diseased by sin, by man's rebellion against God and rejection of his kingship. Now think about, um, we live in a post-COVID world. There was a pre-COVID world. Can you think about pre-COVID world days? When you were sick, what did you do? You walked right in. <laughs> masks? No masks. Walk right in. Vaccination cards? What is a vaccination card? Pre-COVID world, in comparison to post-COVID world, is vastly different. And we've even forgotten about how we functioned before COVID, because it's almost been three years. I mean, a slightest cough waiting for your wife to come in Zara gets you stares. That's what happened to me yesterday. <laughs> but that wasn't the case before COVID. When COVID hit and three years have passed, there is a significant impact, not only in the health of individuals, but how we view the world and even our finance have been impacted by COVID. In the same way, similar way, but vastly more, infinitely more, is when sin entered this world, things have changed. We can't even imagine the world before sin entered. Sin has distorted and marred the world that we live in. We can't even imagine the world that existed before sin. But now the world that we live in is completely and utterly diseased and darkened and marred by sin. And if you're like me, you can't help but to feel the brokenness of this world. We feel the pangs of this world entrenched with sin. Think about the last time you were sick, like flu. You had cold sore, cold, sore throats, your body shivering, coughing, wake up in the middle of the night because of your body aches. Just like how you feel the pangs of a severe flu, we currently feel the pangs of this sin-entrenched broken world. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, you're telling me that. I do believe it, but I don't feel it. Well, brothers and sisters, if you don't feel it, you're either blinded by it or you're distracted. You're either blinded or distracted. Because sin is not merely affecting the outside world, but it's also affected inside of us. Just pay attention not only to the news, 
in New York Times, LA Times, whatever news you channels that you use, pay attention to your thought life every day, and you'll be surprised by the conversations that are going on. I mean, can you imagine transcribing your thought life every day and reading it over? Think about the sins that you are jumping over because you're simply not paying attention. But once you do pay attention, you would soon recognize the evil desires within your heart. The covetous heart. Assuming the worst in others rather than assuming the best. Being petty at work. Being petty with your family members, your kids, your church members. Your pettiness while driving. Lustful thoughts and fantasies. Selfishness. I mean, the list goes on and on just when we pay attention. Pay attention and you'll recognize that something is broken. Maybe you've become too used to this brokenness. Maybe now wickedness seems normal. And that's a sign of worldliness. When wickedness seems normal and righteousness seems strange. That's the world. That's the kind of world that we live in. Brothers and sisters, make sure you understand what God's word says about this side of the resurrection, that the world is indeed broken. That we're awaiting for the celestial city. We're not there yet. Meaning, the things that we see, we're supposed to lament. There is brokenness everywhere, even outside and inside. The world God created in the beginning is no more because it's broken. And now the gospel account of Mark starts with these glorious opening words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of, about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies have finally come. God has finally come through. Restoration through God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Friends, if you don't consider yourself to be a Christian or you're questioning, you are always welcome here. We want to recognize you and thank you for joining us. And this is the message that God the Creator wants you to hear. The simple matter is God made us to enjoy Him. To contrary public opinion that God is a killjoy, God actually made us to enjoy him. That's the truth. You might not hear that outside a church from news articles or any other channels that you hear. You might think that religion is actually the problem. You might think that Christianity is actually a killjoy. Believing in a, in a conservative God like the Christian God is a killjoy. God made us actually to enjoy him. The bad news, though, is that we've rejected his kingship. We've turned our back against our creator and said, you don't own me. You don't control me. I am autonomous. I will make my decisions for my sake. But you might say that you don't actually hate God in comparison to your friends. Your friends are outright 
um, hatred and abhorring God and voicing that opinion, you're not like that. And you're thinking, actually, I don't think I have beef with God. But friends, if you're not a Christian joining us today and you are neutral towards God, your neutrality means hostility towards God because there's no such thing as neutrality towards God. Because God, who is the creator of universe, demands absolute allegiance. Not half-hearted, but absolute allegiance. There is no other king besides King Jesus. So if you don't acknowledge him as your ultimate and final king, you are actually hostile towards him. And the bad news is that everyone in this room, whether Christian or not, will be judged. Everybody will be judged. That's the bad news. And everyone who is judged actually deserves lake of fire, eternal lake of fire. Because we've rebelled against the creator, God. That's the bad news, friends. But the good news is that God sent Christ. God-man 2,000 years ago in Israel, in the land of Israel. And he's the one who was chosen to save sinners like you and I. He actually was tempted just like us in every way, but did not give in. He actually didn't give in to any of his temptations. He didn't rebel against God. He obeyed him perfectly like we're commanded to. And the good news is that he died on the cross. That, and that's a historical data that Jesus Christ, who claimed himself to be God-man, the son of God, the true and better Adam died on the cross for sinners like you and I. That whosoever believes in him and trusts in him and treasures him will inherit eternal life and will not perish and will not taste second death, which is lake of fire. That's the good news, friends. And not only did he stay in the grave, but he rose again, proving himself to be God. And he ascended, and he promised that he will return. So friends, if you're not a Christian joining us today, the good news is preached to you today. That good news is available to you today. That you don't have to perish without knowing Christ, without your allegiance to Christ, and going to hell. You can actually be reconciled to God through Christ if you were to believe in him and repent. So friends, repent from your sins and trust in Christ. That's why we're here. Because Christians all here sitting, we know that we've acknowledged that we're sinners. That we all deserve eternal damnation, yet we're forgiven. We're forgiven because of Christ. So believe in Christ today, friends, and you too will be reconciled to God. That's the good news. You know, we all like to think that we're heroes. Whenever we watch heroic movies, the MCU, we're always thinking about us being heroes. But I want to tell you that we're not. We're actually not the heroes, but we actually serve 
the one and only ultimate hero whose name is Jesus Christ. He's our hero. He's the one that we point to. He's the one that we look to and say, because of him, we are saved. And this gospel is the answer to our deepest need. Your deepest need is not fill in the blank. Your deepest need is not a spouse, a promotion, a better family, a better body, freedom from cancer. That's not our deepest need. Are those needs? Sure. Are they the deepest and ultimate need? Absolutely not. Our deepest need is Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is the answer to our deepest and ultimate need. No one can fill our God-sized holes other than God himself because it's God-sized. So call upon the name of Jesus and ask him again. Look down at your Bibles to verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Some of your Bibles will have them in bold or italics, right? Whenever you see something like that, double click on it and go to the passage that it's referring to. Hover over your imaginary uh, mouse cursor and click on it and go back to the Old Testament text that it's coming from. There's a specific context and understanding that will help you find the reason why the author is quoting that text here in the New Testament. This quote is coming from the book of Isaiah, the one that we read, Isaiah chapter 40. Well, the context of Isaiah chapter 40 is in the context of chapter 39 as well. 39, prophet Isaiah is... Um, prophesizing about a coming judgment because of the rebellion against rebellion of Israelites against God through uh, through King Hezekiah. So Israel, who failed in Isaiah chapter 39, is told that they will be kicked out of the land. The history of Israel. Israel promised a promised land to go into it, to conquer it, to la- to live there as shining light in that land where it's flowing with honey and milk. But God in Isaiah chapter 39 is saying, you will be kicked out of that land because of your rebellion. That's Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah 40 is saying, well, after you are kicked out of that land, I am actually going to restore you. But before that restoration comes, I am going to send someone. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is the text that you're seeing right here. Verse 2 and 3 of Mark chapter 1. That restoration is coming, but before that restoration comes, I am sending someone. And his name is? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is serving as like a salad. A salad. Yes, a salad before the main dish comes. Who eats salad for main dish? Salad is pointing to the main dish, just as John the Baptist is coming to point to the main one, who is Christ. Before a president enters, before a king enters, before a major enters, there is a herald. Someone who enters before and saying, the president is coming. The king is coming. The major is coming. 
Give him the respect that is due because he is coming. That's John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist is coming, Isaiah 40 is written there to say, look, the prophecy is being fulfilled by John the Baptist coming. That's how John the Baptist is introduced in verse 4. Now, verses 4 through 6, we find out more about this messenger. John the Baptist is doing what? What, what kind of action is he doing from verses 4 through 6? He is? Yes, baptizing, dunking people in water, right? He's pro proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the whole Judean country is coming to him and getting baptized for forgiveness of sin. Now, going into the water, dunking someone underwater and coming out of water in the Old Testament symbolized a symbol of cleansing. If you were unclean, you were supposed to be outside the camp. Before coming inside the camp again, you need to dunk yourself in the water so that you might be ceremonially clean. Similar to what John is doing here. People of God were to be clean because holy God is holy. Because God is holy. The concept was that God couldn't dwell with those who are defiled. And those who are defiled could not be with God. So the defiled and the tainted needed cleansing. So John the Baptist was dunking people underwater to help them think about recognizing their sins and repentance. Then he proclaims in verse 7. It reads, he proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All are defiled. Our ceremonial washing and cleansing were meaningless. It's worthless. Like trying to erase a Sharpie mark with an eraser. It can't be done. That's why John the Baptist ends with verse 7. Look, I am doing this, but the one who is coming after me will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. What I'm doing is just a foreshadowing and a pointer to something greater that is coming. And he has indeed come. Someone who can erase Sharpie. Sharpie is incredible, incredibly hard and difficult to erase, but someone who can erase that clean whose name is Christ. So verses 1 through 8 is pointing to the fact that Jesus, I mean, it's not really talking a lot about Jesus here. It's talking a lot about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, is emphasized here because of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The fact is, Jesus is that promised Messiah, the chosen one, the promised one who was to come. And he indeed came after John. So why is our wait over? Because John the Baptist did come, and he pointed to Christ. He was heralding about Christ. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, was fulfilled as John the, John the Baptist is baptizing and pointing to the one who is to come. So that's point number one, that our wait is over because Jesus is the promised Messiah. An application for um, 
those who don't consider yourself to be a Christian. Maybe you have a sincere and a deep desire to be good. And that's a good desire to have. I think that's a grace coming from the Lord, a common grace. You try to be selfless. You try to love others. You try to believe in others rather than doubt others. You look at the world and you tell yourself, I'm not going to be like them because they cause problems. But friends, your goodness is never good enough. You can't be clean enough. It's impossible to wipe your Sharpie mark with an eraser. That's why Jesus, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, dies on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. So stop trying to save yourself with your goodness. Stop trying to coat your sinfulness with your goodness because it will never be good enough. Isn't it tiring? Receive goodness of Christ. If you're a Christian joining us, good news is that our hope is not in our own goodness. Your hope is not in your own goodness. Maybe you've had a terrible week. You've lost your battles. Maybe you feel stuck in your sin, enslaved to sin. Brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is we're no longer enslaved to sin, we're enslaved to righteousness, but not only that, our status before God is spotless because of the spotless lamb. So you don't have to prove yourself to God out of your abundance of goodness because you're already approved. You're approved not because of your goodness, but because of the goodness of Christ. So brothers and sisters, are you having a terrible week? Did you have a terrible week? Brothers and sisters, take heart because Christ overcame the world and he has clothed you with his righteousness. So don't prove to others, to God, by the ground of your goodness. If someone within our church, BBC Saints, if, if other saints are feeling down because of their lack of goodness, point them to the goodness of Christ. That's something easy for us to do. You can say something in the lines of, brother, you haven't been good, but there is someone who is actually perfectly good. And we're commanded to look to him because our goodness is also tainted. We can never be good enough, but he is good enough and he has clothed us with sufficiency of his goodness. That's something easy for, for everyone, every saint in BBC can do. So engage them with the gospel. Now, second reason why our wait is over because, is because Jesus is the promised king. Because Jesus is the promised king. Look down with me to verse 11. Verse 11. It says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. Who is speaking here? God the? Amen. Yes. To whom? God the? Yes. Absolutely. And what does 
God the Father call God the Son here. You are my Yes, beloved. Yes, that is a phrase coming from Psalm chapter 2, which, is re, which we read earlier in our service, in our gathering. That is actually an enthronement psalm, Psalm 2, meaning David is becoming king, and God is saying this to David, who is becoming king. Here, God the Father is speaking these words to God the Son, enthronement of his Kingship. The second point is because Jesus is the promised king. Jesus' baptism and God's voice ripping out of heaven signifies the announcement of Jesus being the king. The king that everyone has been waiting for. Think about all the kings in the past of the Old Testament. When you think about any king... You might be thinking about King David, King Solomon. These are probably the two most prominent kings within the Old Testament. The most pro prominent one, King David. But guess what happened to David? David sleeps with Bathsheba, and he dies. That king dies. What about King Solomon? He sleeps with a bunch of different women, and then he dies. You know why kings are so important? Because the king's subjects reap either the benefits or the horrific consequences of that king. Isn't that also true in the U.S.? Think about all the presidents. The presidents aren't our hope because, I mean, they can change things, but they can't change things ultimately. But we've seen some wicked rules in the past. Kings are important because the subjects will reap either the benefits or the horrendous consequences. So all the kings actually point to the ultimate king who is Christ. The king who dies but who also is raised again. Now look at verse 11 again. A voice coming out from heaven, it says, this is my beloved son. No, that's not what it says. It says, you are my beloved son. Jesus' kingship here is made privately. God is speaking to Jesus, not to the public, but to Jesus. You are my beloved son, not this is my beloved son. Meaning, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was baptized, his kingship was made in private. But there comes a day when his kingship will be public. Does that mean that he's not king right now? Absolutely not. He's been king. He will be king. He's forever king. But here, 2,000 years ago, in his baptism, his kingship is private. But when Christ returns, every, every knee will bow. There's no choice. Every, bow, every knee will bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Believers, unbelievers, doesn't matter. Friends who aren't Christians, you might think, oh, like Jesus is actually not king, but there will come a day when from your mouth will speak that Jesus is Lord because no one can dodge that. 
There will come a day when Jesus' kingship will be absolutely public. Everyone will bow down to him. Friends, believe it or not, everybody sitting here, standing here, serves a king. Consider king as someone or something to whom you give the highest authority in your life. To what or whom do you give the highest authority in your life? Because anything other than God will fail you. And they're all imitations. So let us stop serving imitations of the king and start reading the revelation of the true king. Stop serving imitations of the king, but start reading the revelation of the true king. So why is our wait over? Well, because first, Jesus is the promised Messiah, and second, because Jesus is the promised king. Third, and last reason, why our wait is over is because Jesus is the promised son. Look down with me to verses 12 through 13. It reads, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Jesus was driven to the wilderness, and he was tested for 40 days by Satan. In the other Gospels, the same story is told, and we know from that story that Jesus didn't give in to that temptation. This is a shorter version, but when you look at the longer version, perhaps in Matthew or Luke, you can tell that when Jesus is tempted, he's tempted by Satan with three sentences or three questions. What Satan tries to do is distort God's word. But Jesus, knowing better, equipped with God's word, being God's word himself, incarnate, speak God's word correctly and defeats Satan and is not, he's tempted, but he doesn't give in to the temptation. He successfully resisted, resisted the temptation. In, now compare Jesus in temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden. God gave good commands to Adam and Eve. First and foremost to Adam, what did he say? He said, you can eat anything here. I've given you all things, rule, subdue, multiply, be fruitful, enjoy it. Because I've made you to enjoy me and enjoy me through all creation. Yet the command is don't eat from that tree. Because for sure, if you were to eat of it, you will surely die. That command came with a promise that Whoever eats from that tree will die. But who comes? The serpent comes and deceives Eve. Adam, standing there, maybe perhaps a little dumb, not speaking at all to Eve who's being tempted. Whose words do they trust? God's or the serpent's? The serpent's. Friends, we are always at odds. We're either, either trusting in God's words or serpent's words cloaked with our words. We have to know that. Temptation always comes in the form of trusting in God's words or trusting in Satan's words cloaked with something else. Adam and Eve miserably fails. They eat and they're kicked out. They're tempted, 
they don't successfully resist, they give in, and they're kicked out. That's Adam, our forefather. What about Israel? Israel promised, God promised a land for Israel. They enter into the land, they conquer, yet they also rebel. Did they successfully resist the temptation? No. They're given into idolatry, rebellion, harlots. So Adam fails, Israel fails, and someone comes who's a true Adam, true Israel, coming, tempted for 40 days by Satan himself, fasting. But does he give in? No, he doesn't. The reason why he is our hope is because he is true Adam, true Israel, whom we can hide under. We can look to him because he is the promised son. Everyone strays away from God. No one is righteous, not one. Yet, God the son in the wilderness does not give in. Jesus, the true Israel, the true son of God, does not fail. He's the older brother who represents everyone who trusts in him to the father. He is our advocate. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here, Jesus is our older brother. And Jesus, being seated at the right hand of the father, is advocating for you as the older brother. He is incessantly praying for all of us. And as the high priest, he's sat down right next to the Father, boasting about us. Look at them, my bride. And he's able to do that because he's defeated Satan, death. And he will one day come again. The main idea of today's text was that the wait is over. Indeed, it is over because sinless Jesus did come. The second person of the Trinity put on human flesh, human nature. And he did come and he did die and he did rise again and he did ascend to the right hand of the Father. But our wait isn't quite over yet because we're waiting for his return. When he returns, now he brings celestial city. Our laments, our complaints, done with. Because when he comes, he wipes away all our tears. He restores every brokenness. He won't fail you. Because he is the promised Messiah the promised king, and the promised son. Everyone else might fail you, but not Jesus. He won't fail us. So from this text, my exhortation is look to Jesus. Look to him. You don't have to look elsewhere. He satisfies us, and he's going to come. And our wait will be over. So wait for him. Let's wait for him together. I'll close with the word of prayer.
Father, we pray that you would help us to eagerly wait. We're all waiting for something, yet everything that we're waiting for will inevitably fail us, but not Christ. When Christ returns, we will meet with him in the air as the bride of Christ, unblemished because of the unblemished Lamb of God dying on the cross. Father, we are waiting for that day. Father, help us to point each other to Christ, which is a simple yet also a difficult task living in this world. So encourage us to point each other to Christ and to the waiting of the second coming of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Um, a regular routine at our church is to share tips.